Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Tell me, what does it mean to be human in this particular technological moment? It can seem like conventional measures of what's true, permanent, and, well, human are up for grabs in the face of rapidly advancing tech. And if there's no special spark that truly separates us from other animals or our technological creations, does it matter? That's what we'll try to answer in our 10-part series, Being Human Now. First up, human creativity. We're all fighting for a fair deal. I want to fight for ethical AI. The fight is real. I think they've kicked the hornet's nest. This is major. It's really serious. And it's going to impact every single person. When a big corporation comes to you and says, hey, can we scan you and use your image in perpetuity forever? That should set off some serious alarm bells. In The Strikes by U.S. writers and actors, one of the bones of contention has been future applications of AI and related technologies. Questions like how generative AI tools such as ChatGPT might be used in writing scripts, or whether actors' images can be scanned and used to create future performances. They want to run around us and say, let's make a deal about AI that lasts 10 years in the future or forever, and you don't get to negotiate about that at all. And it's not just those high-profile American strikes. All over, there are actual, practical, real-world discussions about whether AI is going to replace creative artists. Beyond automation, the endless circulation of images and ideas in digital culture can make it feel like culture is less about originality and more about riffing, mashing up, and memifying. But what if AI can be a creative partner rather than a rip-off artist? Like, imagine you're in a lobby in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. In front of you is an enormous work of digital art, four times your height. It's called Unsupervised. And standing beside you is the artist. Uh, Hello, I'm Rafik Anadol. I'm a media artist and director. We are seeing some colors, some forms. They resonate maybe a painting, maybe a photography, maybe a sculpture. But it's this alien universe of like art making that is not necessarily connected to anything that we can correlate. And most importantly, this artwork is alive. It does feel alive. The abstract images on the screen move and morph continuously in response to what's happening around it. It is not repeating itself. It is not a frozen moment. It's not a video. It is a a live piece, meaning the microphone, which is a sound data, the loudness of the museum, the movement in the museum, and the weather conditions is real-time affecting the artwork and making every day, every moment, a new moment. The images are generated by generative AI. But is AI the artist? The collaborator? the medium. It's like a pure 
50-50% human-machine collaboration of a machine dreaming new worlds. The question was how we can reimagine art making, chance, control in the age of machine intelligence. Super core fundamental question. And I took this very serious and tried to create a machine that can dream infinitely new artworks. To do this, Rafiq trained machine learning on the metadata for the 140,000 works of art that are in the MoMA's collection. So first of all, MoMA's archive is so precious. Painting, sculpture, performance, video, photography, even games. I mean, there are like games in this archive. So starting point was just look at the information. But what was really interesting to me was we were not trying to mimic Monet or Van Gogh or like the heroes. We were trying to create a new ways of imagining these forms, colors, textures, patterns, movements, just go beyond that bias that we have. Because art world is snob, art world has, you know, you know, certain certain problems. And I think what I try to speculate here is what happens if we don't have any categories? What happens if there is no just a photography, painting, sculpture? What happens they all just become a one unsupervised data set? And how we can look at this from a fresh perspective? Because our fundamental understanding of art is always categorized, always borders and shapes and like limits and walls. And I think for me, AI has this liberation and new ways of looking fresh perspectives and ask new questions and go beyond our bias understanding of things. And that's why unsupervised is a name that we put truly functionally, (laughs) let AI unsupervised look at this information and become a tool or much specifically thinking brush. So this brush is algorithm, and this pigment doesn't dry. And in this context, we have an algorithm and a data set. They combine together with different layers of like complexities. So when you're making data art, you know, beyond this particular piece, how do you think about the tools that you're using? Like, is machine learning your collaborator, even if your team is designing the software, or or is it more analogous to a tool? And and what's the data? What's what's the data analogous to? So, so I think to really understand this medium, I think a little bit understanding personally is very important because I started using computers while I was eight years old. So first of all, a machine or a computer or a game for me or many people like myself practicing digital art is always like a collaborator, like a machine is a friend. So it's a very, I think, a fundamental start point in life. And secondly, when I think about data, data is not just a number. Data is a form of memory, and mm-hmm. this memory can take any shape and form. And when it comes to algorithms, which is AI in this context, it's just a tool. It's just an extension of the mind, but it's not everything AI is doing. Because current bias and current understanding of AI, people are thinking like just, you know, typing a bunch of things, create things. It's not. In my work, in my team, we always train our own AI models. And that's a fundamental ethical start point. That means that we know where data comes from. Uh We know why we have that data. And we know where we are going. And then there is a fine-tuning process, which is a very human process. When I say fine-tuning, we can really fine-tune the amount of reality that machine can learn from. We can let it go as real as possible or go as dream as possible. And that's exactly where the artistic interventions, um, chance, control, programming, and all that like tears and soul and emotions are all coming together in that context. 
Yeah. So if I could just pick up on something that you said there, as I'm sure you know, there's been criticism about companies like OpenAI scraping human creative works from the internet to train generative AI. Some prominent novelists are even suing OpenAI over this. So can you talk to me a bit about your thoughts about kind of the politics of data being used to train these systems? So first of all, data is the fundamental start point of any information, any mission intelligence. Of course, the people who have concerns and questions, I think, going to the source and, and questioning where data comes from. So I think I can relate to it. And I also understand the concerns and I also understand and relate myself to my colleagues who have been like really feeling, you know, just just feeling outdated, feeling like not, you know, inclusive, feeling that they have never been asked before. I mean, I completely understand and I think these are relevant problems and concerns. So, so I'm not a wishful thinker. I'm the positive thinker when it comes to AI. AI is a very strong, very important technology that has nothing similar ever happened to humankind. That's why I'm very careful and, and, and hearing. But at the meantime, I think any artist working with AI should have a chance, like us, like me, train their own models. It's a luxury. It looks like a privilege. It's actually not. It can be done on the cloud. It can be learned online. It, there's lots of lots of resources. Yes, you, an artist cannot maybe create the next big leap in the AI field, but at least artists can have a full hands-on practice mm. on the data. So I think before taking any action to AI, I think understanding AI is very important because it's a pure mirror for humanity. It is exactly reflecting who we are. And that's just very fundamental understanding of how to, to work with AI. So in our practice, we only work with publicly available data sets. We don't use private data. We have certain uh, just red lines that we never pass. We always like focus on this for the last seven years. And I work with more than 4 billion images. And I'm happy to say that last seven years is a beautiful journey without any ethical problems. So it's possible, but it's a a, a very different approach, perspective, and um, not a comfortable zone to be there. Yeah. The only way of testing the sorts of effects that any new form is likely to have on us is to keep a sharp uh, lookout on changing styles in the arts. The artist is always a jump ahead of technology and is engaged really in giving you images of what sort of effects it's likely to have upon you later on. You are listening to Spark on CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about the nature of creativity in digital culture as part of our occasional series, Being Human Now. Right now, my guest is artist Rafik Anadol. Rafik makes digital art that works in collaboration with digital systems and AI. You know, so much of our lives today are governed by data. It affects all kinds yeah. of opportunities and choices and, and limits some choices as well. So what do you think your artwork shows us by kind of taking this invisible thing of data and making it visible. I think where the magic happens in my mind is the flow of state, a state that when the machines and post-digital architecture, where the stillness or time concept is completely changed. And I think that's where I feel like my work starts to like appear. And I think what is fundamental expectation is, of course, try to inspire the audience. And first of all, I do believe that art should be for 
anyone, any age, any background. I do not believe in elitist approach of art. I do not believe in that just certain people can explore it. That's why my practice started on the streets as a public artist. And I'm an outlier, so I'm not coming from a classical school training of an artist. I'm not coming from a classical gallery context. I don't have a representation. I'm completely independent. So I found that there's many people like myself who have been practicing with digital world. So so my work also represents that 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 community who have been working with data, AI, and and, you know, new visions of machines and technology, sensors and databases. So there's like a, so much, you know, connection there. But fundamentally, I really try my very best to find human in non-human. Mm. And I think the feeling of emotions, the serene connection with the work or a flow state or calming or daydreaming, whatever the keyword that can trigger a feeling that trigger. I'm just trying my very best to touch the mind and the soul because machines are cold. Algorithms are boring <laughs> without human <laughs> context. And I think ultimately I'm trying to find this language of humanity, I guess. Yeah. This episode is part of a series we're doing on what it means to be human in a digital age. And we tend to think of creativity as this sort of uniquely human quality. But do you think that advances in machine learning, like generative AI, mean we have to revise that way of thinking about creativity? I think generative AI is an incredible time to question humanity. I mean, it's just a great moment to like look at us from a mirror that perhaps finally we have something objective maybe something that is different than any other discussion and other dialogues we have been having before. Because AI is questioning creativity. AI is allowing us to question reality. And eventually we will find a way to what is creativity. And we will question who will define what is real. I think it's a very deep discourse and context for humanity. So it will shapeshift many things. It will reconstruct many realities, um, including arts, architecture, engineering, medicine. Every single field, I think, will eventually um, find its own questioning moment. Mm. I think art started much earlier, <laughs> luckily. <laughs> As in most things. <laughs> I think I think artists are always the alarm mechanism for humanity. I think we always had the chance like to um, see things, I hope, in advance and, and talk about it, question about it, and demystify about it. And I think it's a great time also to be an artist because First of all, I was so fortunate to be seeing the birth of internet, web one, web two, web three, blockchain, AI, quantum computation, VR, AR, XR. I think it's a great time to be creative. I think these all like elements of creativity is just exist. And I don't believe just a machine made things have any value. I don't believe just a machine itself or AI itself creating something has any narrative at all. But I still believe in when the human and the mission creates, collaborates, questions, imagines, and f innovation and discoveries happens right there. It's awaiting us. Mm -hmm. AI, like automation more generally, is generally thought of as being about efficiency, right, and productivity. How do you think that work like yours or other digital artists might expand what we think AI is for? So number one excitement for me when I think about AI is a tool that is very different than a traditional tool. So let's think about a beautiful painting studio, a painter and an artist just painting every morning. There's most likely the same pigment, same brush, 
and probably same canvas gesso, but the ideas is changing for the artist. And barely maybe techniques are changing, but not so often. But when we think about AI, every morning is a new tool. Every start is a new tool. And there is no like beginning and end. That to me is one of the major differences when it comes to imaging with mission intelligence. And I do believe that this context of change and control and chance through these algorithms are one giant mystery to be solved by the artists like myself and many others. And I think I still believe that comfort zones in AI will not create breakthroughs. Currently, Mm -hmm. large language models are very much easy access tools that are great for sketch, but not for breakthroughs. They're just like a starting point. That plotting an image, plotting a text, I don't believe are the ultimate output that have the artistic merit or quality. I still believe that on top of it, when the human imagination comes, when human takeover comes, that's exactly where the art happens. And that's one of the reasons I have been like practicing um, AI and custom algorithms to generate new kind of feeling certain imaginations on a building facade or on a human brain or a heartbeat data, wind data or a building entrance or a museum or like, you know, that's just, I'm trying my very best not to be biased by just one simple canvas. Mm -hmm. And of course, artists have a long history, A, of using new technologies and B, using new technologies for sort of subversive or unusual or unconventional purposes, right? Absolutely. And I think there are worlds that are like uncharted. There are worlds that are not even like touched before. And there are things that have been not brought together before. It is like that inspiration to me that machine and algorithms can create for humanity that I think will generate more breakthroughs. Rafiq, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for your insights. Thank you very much. Rafiq Anadol is a digital media artist and director based in Los Angeles. Nora Young, and this time on Spark, we're kicking off a new occasional series, Being Human Now. We'll be looking at facets of our human existence that we once took to be distinctly ours and how they're changing in today's technological moment. This time, creativity. So we can think of a technology like artificial intelligence as an artistic collaborator, as we heard Rafiq Anadol describe his own creative practice. But can AI be thought of as creative on its own, or even as understanding creativity? This guy is trying to figure that out. My name is Fabrizio Goes, and I'm a lecturer at the University of Leicester, and I do research on creative evaluation using large language models. We define creative something that is novel and valuable at the same time. So novel, uh, or when you talk about novelty, you're saying how different these artifacts or what you're doing creative is different from the, the existing ones. And when we're talking about value, it depends on the creativity domain. For example, if you're doing a culinary recipe, so you're looking for something tasty. If you're looking to painting, you're looking to something aesthetic pleasing, for example. So value changes accordingly to each uh, domain. So are you looking for an end product that's creative or a process that's creative? 
Yeah, that's interesting because there are four types of creativity. You know, you have four P's of creativity, we call. So you have the person creativity, the product creativity, the public creativity, and the, yeah, I forgot the four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the process, yeah, it's the process. The process can be creative or the person is the creative agent on that. You know, so uh, my research usually focus on the product. Okay. So I know one of the things that you looked at is uh, jokes in large language models, chat GPT being the most well-known example of a large language model. Can you tell me a little bit about that work? Yeah. So... I, I, I'm not very good at jokes, especially in English. I'm not a native speaker. So I would like to have a robot to tell me when I have to laugh, you know, when someone tells a joke. So <laughs> that's my motivation behind it. So what I did is basically, uh, well, there was a paper from a comedian, an American comedian, and he, he created a system to create jokes. And he asked people to rate those jokes between one and five. How how fun funny is those or those jokes? And then my idea was, how can we create a system that can evaluate that those jokes like people do? So I, I I took all those rankings and I put the GPT and said, okay, joke one, the rate is four. Joke two is two. And then I create a method that GPT creates. I asked to, uh, GPT create a description of the person that evaluated those jokes in that way. And then it creates a description of this fictional person that rates jokes in, in this way. And then uh, when I applied that to, to GPT, GPT was actually able to replicate how that person would evaluate things. So I'm creating a kind of, uh, uh, let's say you have a public, your public, you have your show and you have your public. So what I'm trying to do is create the personas of the groups of people that watch your show. So before you even release your next uh, interview, you can check with them if they like it or not. You know, that's the kind of research I'm doing. And I did that with jokes. Very small, simple experiment, first steps to do it. So your system was designed to evaluate whether a joke was funny or not. Yeah, yes, yes, evaluate. So let me ask you, though, if machine learning is trained on data sets of prior work, can it really be said to be producing something truly original or truly novel if it's based on training data from things that have come before? Yeah, some people will say that those large language models, they are not creative by design, you know, because they're really good at mimicking things that exist. You know, they can do slightly changes or tweaking things, you know, but they, they, they don't really create things that are, let's say, truly creative. There, there is another definition which helps on that. Because there are two types of creativity, P creativity and H creativity. P creativity is personal creativity. So, for example, if you do something that's new for you, it's creative for you. But it's not creative for everyone. It's just for you or for a group of people. This is P creative. Historical creativity, you can think about a Nobel Prize. It's something no one has done before. So these models, they can do P creativity, but they cannot do... H creativity, yet. <laughs> yet, do you think that one day they will be able to do that? 
I think they could, you know, because now these systems, they are like they are locked inside the, uh, a box. You know, they are not like me and you that we r walk around and we listen to people. We have all other uh, sensory input and it, it, it's just locked in time and in the that, that space. So it doesn't get inspired by things. And creative, there is a really interesting thing about it. Creativity depends on timing, you know? So for example, if you take something really creative today and you show it to someone 200 years in the past, they might not understand it. They might say, oh, it doesn't make sense to me. So it's not creative. So if you don't have an AI that's able to live at the same time with the same conditions we have, it will never be able to be really creative in the sense that we, 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 we know it. I guess you could also say that as human beings, in some ways, we're all trained on the products of the culture that have come before, right? We don't come into the world and invent things that have never existed before. We sort of mm -hmm. build on what, you know, what, what's come before us, whether that's recipes or uh, works of art or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So um, is it possible for machines to generate not so much artistic creativity, but creative concepts, like, for example, a creative political idea? Yeah, I think so. As, as long as it's, it's trained... It's the same concept, right? It just changed the domain. And then when it changed the domain, changed the data it was trained on, you know? So the things it can do for art, it can do for any field, really. Right, right, right. As a person who's been, who's been working in this area for a while, what do you make of the sort of flurry of interest we're seeing now with tools like ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion for images? Yeah, you know, it, it was a surprise, I think, in the field, how good these things are. If you ask me like five years ago, I wouldn't say like, oh, uh, large language models will do these amazing things. You know, we thought it was just a way, a good tool for translation or these kind of uh, things. And for image, when you take like mid journey, that you can actually generate full detailed image, you know, no one was expecting that, you know, mm. and, and it happened because we had some advancements in the techniques, but basically what, what was fundamental to all of it is it was the amount of data and the processing power of computers. Mm. Once we made them bigger, they got smarter. So I think that's the, the, our feeling in the field. Yeah, interesting. I'm Nora Young. Right now on Spark, my guest is Fabricio Goes, a lecturer at the University of Leicester. We're talking about his research in computational creativity, in particular, getting large language models to evaluate examples of creativity. But what about the intention or subjectivity of the creator? I know that if I look at a painting, I don't just want it to be beautiful. I want to feel like I have an authentic connection with the creator, that they're trying to communicate, which, of course, you wouldn't get with a program. Yeah, there is one concept in computational creative called uh, framing. So framing is basically the, the background of this uh, artwork, for example. So who, who, who made it? How was it conceived and all these things that we get attached to, you know, when, when you see, I don't know, a famous uh, painting, you know, 
it's not just about the painting it's about the painter right as well mm-hmm, and yeah. machines they have this this advantage you know because they don't have a background uh, no one is interested in the background of gpt you know <laughs> but i imagine the, in the next years what will happen is you have like a channel a robot and this robot keep changing uh, creating things over time and people follow the evolution of these robots creating things. And maybe in a few years, people will have some connection with this kind of, of, of robot, like they build connections with people. But now, if you if you do the, the experiment, you show like a, a product made by AI and another one made by AI, but you say the first one was made by humans, people tend to put more value to the the, the first one made by humans. Mm-hmm. But I think over time, people get used to it. And you have AIs generating things and people get attached to them. And then they, they will think, okay, this is really creative. I follow this robot and uh, this robot's amazing, you know? So these kind of things. <laughs> so we might think about... Uh, an AI system having like a blue period, the way we talk about Picasso and his blue period or whatever, that you see it evolving through different iterations. Yeah, yeah. there, there, there is a system, a company, that they created like a Twitter only with robots. So they create their own personalities, they post things and they comment on each other's uh, uh, posts. So it's already happening, you know, this kind of, 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 of AI uh, person, you know. Mm-hmm. So the viewer or the, the listener brings some of their own perspective to appreciating a creative work. Is there any way to account for that in evaluating machine creativity? Yes, Uh I, I'm, I'm actually uh, finishing to submit a, a grant for a project. I'm working with the National Space Center here in Leicester. So it's a museum. They have basically parents and children and schools going there. And what we are trying to do is to create like an inclusive audience for the museum. Because when they design the museum, there is a lot of uh, uh, concern about uh, accessibility and, 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 and so on. And they don't get the opinion of every group about the exhibition. So we are trying to ask people to go there, take some surveys with them, get the information we need. Then we will train the model to create these inclusive audiences. And then those audiences will be a plug-in in their tools when they are designing the exhibition. So if they are not designing it in an inclusive way, the, the tool will say, okay, I, I don't like this. It's missing this, 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 and that. So that's what we are trying to do in that project. Exactly create those audience so everyone's represented and the experience in the museum is actually for everyone. Mm. You know, we usually think of AI or automation broadly as about efficiency and productivity. Do you think that the type of work you're doing opens up new ways of thinking about what AI systems can be used for? Yeah, that's an example. You know, these will, once you have these audiences uh, plugged to their tools, the creative professionals will increase their productivity because if you have to invite some people in the museum, ask them, get surveys, this takes time and money. So if you have a real-time feedback, this will allow you to improve. And I think this type of 
uh, real-time feedback or these kind of audiences or even tutors, virtual tutors, they, they will be very common and they'll help everyone to speed up what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, even, even in research now, when I'm doing research, when I need to code something, I ask GPT, give me that code and this and that. When I'm writing some text, I ask GPT for some ideas and then I fix it. It's already speeding up uh, my productivity. Has your research changed the way you think about human creativity? Yeah, that's that's a hard question. <laughs> I've been working on that field for a long time. So I always focused on, on, on trying to define what's creativity. Because when I start doing research on that, people were still discussing what is creativity. And people said, oh, it's imagination, it's inspiration. But these things are hard to quantify. So we needed to find a way to quantify it. What differentiates these computational creative systems from traditional AI is what you said before. The AI, the, the classical AI, they are targeting at increasing efficiency. And creativity is efficiency, which is value, but it's also the novelty, how different these solutions are from the others. And these make a huge difference of, of what creativity is. But still, the systems we have today, they don't do true creativity, the creativity you would expect, you know, like the human creativity we would expect. We still need even GPT. Who is creative, GPT or the person writing the prompt to GPT? You know, mm. I think it's the person. If you write a very bad prompt, <laughs> GPT will come up with something really general, right. you know, but... <laughs> If you write a proper prompt, for example, if you ask a, a, a book writer to write a proper chapter or something, it would be much better if you ask me to write uh, the prompt for GPT. You know, so I think it's still down to the human, to to humans to do the the creative part. Hmm. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you very much. Fabricio Goes is a lecturer at the University of Leicester. Well, of course, the three laws of robotics were originally invented by me in order to avoid the Frankenstein motive, because before I wrote my stories, most robot stories were filled with this Frankenstein bit about the robot destroying its creator. However, I was asked to write a robot story to end all robot stories, so I wrote one in which robots became so intelligent that by any reasonable definition, they defined themselves as human beings, you see. So that now the three laws of robotics became the three laws of humanics. And we're right back to the Frankenstein motif. <laughs> I received letters from readers saying, does this mean you're never going to write any more robot stories? And I wrote back saying, don't worry, if I think of a good robot story, I'll write it anyway. CBC Radio, for the unwinding mind. Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. 
From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. So maybe we'll discover that AI can recognize and produce creative work on its own. But the artistic life is changing for human creators, too. For instance, the tech news site Rest of World reports that generative AI companies are hiring poets and novelists, people with PhDs and years of experience. But they're not hired to create for us humans. They're hired to create training data to make AI better at writing for us humans. So if you're a human creator and you want to create for other people, how do you reach them in a digital system run by algorithms? The creator economy is this new model driven by often individuals who leverage platforms and technology to create and distribute their content, their creations, their skills and their services. This is Jenny He. And I'm the founder and general partner of Position Ventures. While I'm not a creator myself, we have made a couple investments in new technology startups that are enabling creators and the creator economy. Jenny says the key to success in the creator economy is knowing your audience and catering to the kind of content they want. What's really exciting about creating content online is with the internet, with the technology and the tools available to us now, anybody can be a creator. So creators are people from all walks of life, from all ages, all demographics. And because it's so easy to distribute content nowadays, anyone can be a creator, no matter how niche that topic is. What a lot of creators are starting to realize, and actually what a lot of the new creator economy startups are working at solving, is how can we give more power to the creator, right? So different platforms have different algorithms, these things change, and that could really affect a creator. So a lot of creators are starting to think about how can I own my audience? And what are the different tools I can use to really understand who my audience is? How can I reach them directly? And how can I sell to them directly? There's lots of different tools and technologies and products being built for the creator economy because people are seeing that a lot of people are starting to become creators. So personally, for me as an early stage tech investor, I'm particularly interested in how are new technologies, for example, like AI or blockchain, how can they become catalysts for enabling the growth of innovative businesses in the creator economy? So a couple of our investments include CreatorDAO, First Collab, and Fractal. So these are all like different products that help enable creators to be more successful. market is changing. A couple years ago, people were very focused on, you know, how can we game the algorithm? And people still are. But as people realize there's more and more platforms for them to distribute their content, people are more comfortable owning and being authentic to themselves and the content they want to create for the audience that wants to consume that content. Jenny He is the founder and general partner of Position Ventures. Originality and individuality are key aspects of human creativity. But in online culture, creativity can mean remixing, repurposing, or sometimes straight up copying what other people are making, where the creative act is more of a collective enterprise, like in the case of internet memes. 
All of that copying makes things complicated but interesting for intellectual property experts like Jeannie Fromer. She's the Walter J. Derenberg Professor of Intellectual Property at NYU School of Law. Traditional copyright is supposed to balance protecting creators with still allowing new culture to flourish. But Jeannie argues that the digital culture of memes doesn't fit all that well with the tradition of copyright. So copyright law generally understands a work to be original if it's both independently created and it has a modicum of originality, of creativity, excuse me. Everyone has a different understanding what creativity means, but that's the headline of what originality is. And does that sort of legal definition of original work run in any way contrary to how us regular lay people think of what constitutes originality? I think so, because some people have a very high standard of what originality is. Something has to be sparklingly new, something they've never been exposed to beforehand um, for it to be original. But the law understands originality to be a pretty low threshold. There are, frankly, very few things that don't qualify as original. You know, just to give you some sense of that, the U.S. Supreme Court has held that um, telephone white pages organized by a person's last name with their phone number, that's not original. So for that narrow band of things, how do we typically define copied art from a legal perspective? The law understands that things both have to be actually copied or factually copied. So if someone created the exact same thing as someone else, but it was independently done and somehow they could prove that. So it has to be factually copied. And it also has to be what I'd call legally copied or have substantial similarity, meaning enough material has to have been copied for it to rise to a level that the law ought to be concerned about it. And what is that level? You know, can't be pinned down exactly. Sometimes it's about the amount of copying. Sometimes it's about the quality of copying. Typically, it's a matter of both. So is that in in a circumstance where a copy could be considered an original work of art if it, if it doesn't meet the threshold of lots and lots of copying? Um, yeah, it's possible that something copied that we might conventionally refer to as copied won't be considered copyright infringement for purposes of the law. I should also say that even when something is considered a substantial amount of copying, all major forms of copyright law, the U.S. and other um, areas have carve-outs of different kinds for copying that society and the law therefore deems valuable. You know, in the U.S., we'd refer to this as fair use. It's often referred to in different ways in other countries. But often the notion is that you could copy something if you're an art critic and want to show the art and you're taking the entire thing to show that and make your point. Or you want to copy an excerpt from a a book or a movie to criticize it. Or you want to create a parody that in order to work has to draw on a previous work. So there are all sorts of copying that are condoned and in fact encouraged. We call that fair dealing in Canada, and it comes up quite quite a bit in terms of the work that we do and being able to play things like movie clips and so on. So Jeannie, you've written about the relationship between internet memes and copied art. So are memes copies or are they original? I love that. It's a great question, both. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're both. 
and partly I'm answering that based not just on a legal framework, but partly a colloquial one as well, or a mishmash of them. Memes themselves, the whole idea of memes, and, and memes can be understood like broadly and narrowly, but the term originated with um, the biologist Richard Dawkins, who created this term as a way to draw an analogy between ideas and genes, how ideas can be units of cultural transmission that replicate and leap from brain to brain in the same way that genes um, replicate. And part of what's baked into that notion is it comes from a Greek word meaning imitation. And so it's both got this notion of copying and originality, I think, baked into it. And I think, you know, the way we even narrowly understand internet memes, right? We've got, you know, these digital images that are created and recreated by putting captions to other people's photos or by mixing images together or referring to other images. There is both an element of originality or creativity in them, and there's an element of copying, and they're joined. You've written that memes subvert basic assumptions about copyright law. So in what way does copyright law not fit the creative culture of memes? One, I think copyright law is founded on this notion that one produces creative works without copying and copying is morally wrong and it's economically harmful to artists um, if people copy their works. Copyright law also believes copyright protection has to last for a long time in order for the value of a work to be monetized by the creating artists. And the last you know, point I'll make is that copyright law believes that the author is central. The author is the mastermind of everything. And memes subvert these notions in all sorts of ways because meme creators generally want their creations that look you know, and smell like copyrighted works. They want their works to be copied and transformed. They want to lose control over them. They want their works to go viral. And that's because the copying creates all sort of value for them, but not in a way that copyright law usually takes count of. So one, it's creating value often for the underlying work that's being used in the meme. So um, there are so many famous memes where this happens. Um, one uh, that I can think of is the one that puts together a scene from the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills with a cat and a woman yelling at a cat. You know, the makers of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, they're not coming after the meme creator and everyone who's making memes of this. They love this because it's great publicity for their show. And it's created probably a lot of monetary value um, for the show. (laughs) Then on top of that, the person who makes the meme and has it spread, they're not making any money off of it. They're not charging licenses generally um, or suing for infringement. But they're often getting indirect value, which leads to monetary and other gains, um, whether it's because they're getting more attention or followers, or they're getting new jobs that they wouldn't have gotten. Otherwise, some very successful meme creators have been hired by fashion brands like Gucci to create campaigns for them. Um, and they're all and they could have, you know, lucrative advertisements. So there's an indirect monetization that comes from it, but it's not directly from the copyrighted work, which is very unusual. The other, you know, two ways that counteract the assumptions that copyright law has is one, the scale and pace of copying is so substantial 
Hmm. Um, that it often leads to memes becoming relatively stale fairly quickly. And so this notion that you have to have copyright for this very long period of time to get any value out of it also is counteracted by the way that memes spread. And then lastly, it really feels that with memes, the centerpiece is the meme, not the author. We often don't know who the author is. We don't ask who the author is. We refer to the memes by the meme, not, you know, the way we say, oh, that song by Drake or or other things where we're often referring to um, the copyright author. You know, these have a life of their own and we think of them that way. And the author is decentered. Yeah. In some ways, the creative enterprise of the meme is the morphing and copying itself in some ways, rather than the original and then the subsequent copies. I think that's right. I mean, I think, and I think we see that based on what people see memes as contributing. Why are people doing this? Part of it is they're creating new things and that fits in some ways in um, the copyright mold. They're recontextualizing, they're combining, they're creating new content. But a lot of it is about finding common ground in a cultural context with each other, right? When we use the meme, then we know that we're both speaking the same language or we have certain things in common that we could build upon in interacting with each other. And it's also part of the very participatory culture we live in, in the internet age and the social media age. This is a good time, I think, to bring up a point that when any new form comes into the uh, foreground of things, we naturally look at it through the old burials. We can't help that. This is normal, and we're, we're, we're just trying to fit the old things into the new form, instead of asking, what is the new form going to do to all the assumptions we had before? I'm Nora Young. Right now on Spark, my guest is Jeannie Fromer, an intellectual property professor at New York University's School of Law. Jeannie has written about what she calls the new creativity and how some digital content subverts traditional notions of copyright and artistic ownership. Old creativity is not gone. It's not, you know, a dinosaur. I think we've got a lot of examples of it um, in contemporary culture, whether it's the Barbie movie's great success or Beyonce, Taylor Swift. You know, that's the old creativity and it thrives in many ways, not entirely, but in many ways on the classic copyright model. You've got an author and they have a get exclusive rights to their creations and they could reap the benefits of that for a long time. The new creativity is decentered from that. It cares less about copying and is very much promoting of it, in fact. And for goals that don't have to do with directly having exclusive rights in a work, even though monetary gain might be a goal. In the end. And it's just a new pathway. And, you know, my co-author Amy Adler and I tend to think these two are going to sit side by side with each other and interact with each other. It's not that one model is going to go away. But now that we're living in this increasingly visual culture and participatory culture, we're going to have a lot more of the new creativity that was frankly in a lot of art for a long time 
but it wasn't the mainstream model of things, even as there's always been copying to create new things. The other thing I think that's worth noting is how the old creativity will interact with the new creativity. They're not totally separate. So when I'm talking about Beyonce and Taylor Swift and the Barbie movie, they're benefiting from the new creativity too. I mean, the Barbie movie, if not for, you know, all the memes that are being passed around that people are making, the studios are making an offering up that people are making and sharing, that definitely leads to success in the old model. And they should probably like it. They shouldn't go after people copying things that may traditionally be copyright infringement because it's probably good for them in the same way The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills being memed is good for that show. Um, Olivia Rodrigo became a huge success because of all the use of her work on TikTok and the interpretations of her work. That really helped her take off. And now she's in the old copyright model in some ways, but because of um, the new creativity. Do you think that copyright rules can be adapted to both accommodate the internet's remix culture, if we want to call it that, while ensuring that the people who need to get paid get paid? I think and hope so. Again, because the old creativity and the new creativity are both great and they're intermingling in many ways. And, you know, part of what I hope is that creators are more sensitive to not pursuing every single thing as infringement, even when they maybe can under the current law. And I think, you know, we're seeing that more and more. I mean, years ago, Disney had a reputation for going after any little thing, um, including parodies of songs from its uh, movies. And then Frozen came out. And when Frozen came out, there were a number of parodies of the, you know, big songs in there, Let It Go and whatnot. Disney didn't go after them, kind of celebrated them. And it was a big move that they recognize that it would create goodwill to leave this alone. It's not a good look to go after your fans necessarily and um, that it actually could be valuable. And, And so I think what we've seen in the context of memes, there are very few lawsuits that have happened. They've tended to happen when someone takes a meme and uses it, let's say, in a very non-meme-like context for advertising. The owner of Grumpy Cat went after um, Grumpy Cat Grumpuccino ice coffee <laughs> drinks for using an image of Grumpy Cat. But they're clearly not going after everyone <laughs> making copies of Grumpy Cat. So there is a notion of selective enforcement. But more broadly, I think that copyright law might accommodate this by really articulating when it has to, what constitutes a fair use or a fair dealing, because it's transformative and that the creators of memes are kind of issuing like an implied license to the world to copy. And they shouldn't then be able to go after people that actually take them up on this and make copies and sue. Yeah. Jeannie, thanks so much for your insights on this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for talking with me. Jeannie Fromer is the Walter J. Darren Burke Professor of Intellectual Property at NYU School of Law. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarit Johannes, Samir Chabra, and me, Nora Young. And by Rafik Anadol, Fabricio Goes, Jenny He, and Jeannie Fromer. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.